Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this episode, I'm talking to Trevor Brown, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. Trevor's been covering Oklahoma's recently completed candidate filing period. Trevor, what are some of the takeaways after Friday's deadline? Yeah, so there was a lot of candidates that came out filing, um, but not as many as some of the past years. You know, specifically looking at the legislature, there's 125 races. 55 of them were left uncontested. That means only one person filed for a seat. So what happens in those races where only one person filed? That person gets an automatic win. It's as simple as that. They don't have an opponent. The elections are called off. They're they're reelected without having to need a single vote, having to raise a, having to raise a single dollar, having to convince voters. They're just there's automatically in the next legislative legislative session. Well, 55 out of 125, nearly half. Yeah. What do we know about those who got that automatic win? Yeah, so there was a lot more Republicans than Democrats. So we had about 37 House Republicans, eight House Democrats, five Senate Republicans, and three Senate Democrats. You know, in addition, so of the 55, 53 of them were incumbents. Two of them were never, have never served in the legislature before. That includes Jerry Avalod. He is a Carter County Commissioner and Tulsa Insurance Agent Mark Tedford. So voters maybe not don't even know any about these people, but they're they're going to be representing them next year. Well, now, Trevor, this is not a new issue, right? How did how did this year's filing period compare to previous years? Yeah, so there is more uncontested races this year than in 2020. Um, during that year, there was 50. Like I said, this year, there's 55. Um, it's important to note that in 2020, obviously, the beginning of COVID was happening. Um, party leaders said that was a factor that um, kept a lot of candidates out because they didn't want to campaign in that in that climate. Um, but it's notable that it's even after this, you know, it's still going down. So this is kind of a problem that maybe both party leaders need to look at. Now, you alluded to this a minute ago, but one party fielded more candidates than the other, didn't they? Yeah, so it was a big um, contrast between how many Republicans and Democrats ran. Um Totally, total, there's 182 Republicans that filed for one of these 125 seats. Um, that means at least one Republican in 111 of 125 races. In contrast, only 58 Democrats filed. That's leaving about 61% of legislative races without a Democratic candidate. Well, what does that mean then for control over uh, the chambers, the House and the Senate next year? Yes, yeah, so Republicans have a supermajority control currently about 81%. Um, the way that, you know, the the filings worked out, Democrats could win every single election where they're on the ballot this this general election, and they still would fall short of eclipsing the Republican majority. Um, you know, there's a chance Republicans could pick up seats. They're already at historic margins. Um, so this could be a tough re-election or election season for Democrats specifically just the number of races that they have to win just to keep their current numbers. What's that going to mean for voters? Yeah, so this is an issue for a lot of voters. I did a article a couple of years back where I looked at how 
in some districts, people haven't voted for their representative in four, six, eight years. You know, this is a, this is a thing that matters because if if the candidate is not accountable to the voters, you know, that's kind of undermine, undermines the you know the base of the democracy. And if a voter can't have a say, they're going to be less interested. They're going to be maybe less educated. Um, so it's it's definitely a concern. Well, how about this year's congressional races then? Are we going to see uh, any more crowded fields with those? Yeah, so all five congressional races in both uh, U.S. Senate races will be in the ballot. Um, we're looking at GOP primaries for almost all of these seats, including a very crowded 14-candidate field for the 2nd Congressional District and a 13-person field for the U.S. Senate seat that U.S. Senator Jim Inhofe is leading. Well, what about the governor's race and some other statewide races? Is there any competition in those? Yeah, so we'll see primaries both on the Republican and Democratic side for the, the governor's race. Governor Stitt is, is facing a couple of challengers from his own party. On the Democratic side, you got Connie Johnston versus Superintendent of Public Instruction, Joy Hofmeister. Um, outside of that, there will be Republican primaries for most of the statewide positions, but not many primaries for um, on the Democratic side. Now, one race has already been decided, right? Yeah, just like the, the legislative races, there is one race where only one person filed. That was uh, Glenn Mulready, who's Oklahoma's insurance commissioner, so he wins his re-election bid without needing a single vote. Now, candidates who have a primary challenger uh, don't have a lot of time with this cycle, right? When will the voters be headed to the polls? Yeah, so it's only about two months away. June 28th is the primary. About two months later is the runoff in the end of August, if needed. And then, of course, we have the general election in November. All right. Well, thanks, Trevor. You can read all of Trevor Brown's investigative work related to democracy at OklahomaWatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest Justice Watch newsletter, Keaton wrote about a planned pay raise for state corrections employees. Keaton, how much of a raise will state correctional officers get? So we're looking at a 30% raise, which would put it up to around $21 an hour currently a starting entry-level correctional officer earns fifteen seventy-four an hour, uh, so a pretty significant raise. The 30% is huge. What about other positions within the agency? So everyone employed within the agency will get at least a 4% raise, and then some other key roles within the agency will get an even greater raise. Uh, for example, 20% for probation and parole officers, and then 16% for medical workers who obviously during the pandemic have been working exceptionally hard. And when are those pay increases going into effect? So we're looking at July 1st, which is the start of the new fiscal year. Now, Oklahoma's prisons have been understaffed for years. Has the issue grown more more severe in recent months? It has. It has. I, I reported on it last summer, took kind of a deep dive into the problem and possible solutions and at that point, the state was at around 1,400 correctional officers statewide. Uh, I looked at the most recent numbers from late February, and that's down closer to 1,100. So even just over the past nine months or so, 
um, people have been leaving the job. Um, of course, the a prison in northwest Oklahoma closed at the end of the year, so that could be contributing some some people choosing to leave as opposed to transferring to a new facility, but still a pretty significant decline overall. Yeah, it's got to be off the top of my head, probably 18 or 20 percent drop just in those few months. So other than the the prison closing uh, and maybe some people getting getting out of the industry there, do we know what else contributed to uh, the drop in staffing? Yeah, so nationwide, we've seen, in, in addition to a lot of other industries, during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, lots of people choosing to leave you know, jobs in prisons for several different reasons. One, not if you're trying to avoid contracting COVID, not a great place to, to be working in close proximity to people, obviously a high transmission risk. So that uh, was likely a contributor to some people leaving. And then also just, you know, there's been long held complaints about the hours, you know, working overtime. Most people who work in prisons work a lot of hours and then also just, you know, the overall conversation about the way people are treated and the culture has been at the forefront and all of those things have kind of come together and staffing at prisons has been a problem in Oklahoma as well as several other states. Well, let's talk about those other states. What have they done to try to improve staffing in their prisons? Yeah, so it's been kind of a, a, a recent trend over the past year or so. States, you know, making an effort to really raise pay, you know, make it out, try to improve the culture within these prisons to try to recruit workers. Um, you know, for example, Texas, you know, just last month increased their pay 15% for everyone working in state prisons. So as we've seen a more competitive labor market with a lot of jobs, prisons, uh, corrections officials are, are having to get more competitive and, and try to make it out that this is a great place to work and, and you should come apply. How's that working elsewhere? So uh, Nebraska is another state that that's recently upped their pay. Last fall, they increased their hourly wage from $20 an hour starting up to $28 an hour, uh, which for an annual salary puts it in the $55,000, $60,000 a year range. Um, and officials there said that after that pay increase was implemented over the next couple of months, applications just came pouring in. There was much more interest in the job. And, you know, once you get more people working, the load on the people who are already there is decreased, you, you know, maybe not having to pull as many overtime shifts, not as much stress there. So kind of makes things better for everyone. Um, certainly a tough job, a stressful job, but when you're not having to work significant hours and, and that sort of thing, it, it take, certainly takes a load off. Now, there's a bill uh, still pending in the legislature that would increase pay for all state employees. If that passes, will that also apply to prison workers in addition to this raise? It would, yes. So that's that's passed the House. It's currently eligible to be heard in the Senate. That would be a 3% raise. So the starting pay for you know an entry-level corrections officer would go from uh, – it would increase 33%. So that's pushing up to around maybe just over $21 an hour, if my math is correct. So certainly that that would make the job more attractive. 
All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of Keaton Ross's investigative work on criminal justice issues at our website, oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Paul Munnies, who covers politics and state agencies. He was among the reporters keeping an eye on who was filing for office last week. Paul, what was the most surprising thing? There's always something. What was the most surprising thing about candidate filing this year? Yeah, over the three-day period last week, um, probably the most surprising happened on Friday when uh, former Attorney General Scott Pruitt showed up uh, around lunchtime at the Capitol and filed for one of the U.S. Senate seats uh, that's being vacated by Jim Inhofe. And uh, he was rumored kind of a little bit before then to possibly dip his toes into that race, but then he made it official uh, on Friday. And, of course, that's a pretty crowded field already. Well, uh what offices at the other end of the scale are among the least competitive? Well, yeah, my colleague Trevor Brown has talked about the, the legislature and some of those races that are non-competitive, but also statewide, um, I would say, you know, the, the Democrats did not field a, a, a candidate for attorney general, which is kind of surprising. That's one of the more powerful um, uh, offices in the state. Uh, there are a couple of uh, Republicans obviously running for that, John O'Connor, the incumbent who was appointed by Governor Stitt, and um, Gintner Drummond, who is an attorney and banker from um, Tulsa area. But uh, the Libertarians actually did feel a candidate for that, so that is more competitive in the general as well. How many uh, district attorneys in the counties have filed without any opponents? So there's 27 districts for district attorneys, and they're up on the same cycle as governors, so they're this year. And... Um, more than 20 uh, had no opponent and just got basically reelected without any opposition. Uh, we do have a competitive race here in Oklahoma County. Um, we've got two Democrats who are running for the, the district attorney's job uh, that's being vacated by David Prater. And there's obviously a few Republicans in that field as well. So that would be one of the few competitive DA races. Is that surprising to have so few competitive races for the district attorney jobs? It's not super surprising. I mean, we've had a trend of, of district attorneys resigning halfway through their term and ha- appointing their first deputy and kind of giving them a kind of a, a glide path to the next election cycle. Uh, that's happened several times lately, but obviously with the focus on criminal justice reform, that's one of the few areas where district attorneys can make a difference in terms of what the policies uh, are in that office. Did we have anybody this year who wanted to file but uh, wasn't allowed to? That's happened in the past. That's right. Yeah, I talked to a couple people this this past week. Um, former district judge Kendra Coleman uh, had already filed a campaign finance account with the Ethics Commission, but she showed up on, on Wednesday last week at the Capitol, um, and she was not allowed to file. She had been removed previously. Uh, by the Supreme Court for for some tax uh, problems that she had as a judge before, and the, basically the election board said, "Sorry, on advice of counsel, you're not letting to be, we're not going to let you file this time." Um, any candidates rejected? Sometimes there are challenges, and and uh, people file, but then get get booted out. Were there any on that list? That's right. Yeah, I talked to to a candidate on Friday who actually had, was one of the the first people who filed on Wednesday, and he came back and on Friday afternoon and withdrew. Uh, he apparently, his district, he was running for state senate. Uh, he's a school teacher and, and um, wanted to run last time, but missed a deadline. This time around, I guess he figured out his polling place was in the wrong district. And so his would-be opponent called him up and said, I may challenge on this uh, in, the, in the candidacy uh, challenge filing, which is this week. Um, and he basically just came up and withdrew his candidacy and forfeited his filing fee, unfortunately. 
Oh, geez. Well, uh, you mentioned a minute ago the libertarians. How have they uh, done in, in filing for office and, and maintaining their party status? Yeah, so the Libertarians became an official party to, to run uh, candidates a couple years ago. And to keep that threshold, they have to keep filing uh, candidates and getting a certain percentage of the vote. And they've done a pretty good job of targeting races where maybe Democrats didn't show up and, and file for, for office for that. And so there's, there's several Libertarians that are now uh, filed for both the U.S. Senate seats um, for, for this election cycle, for governor, for lieutenant governor for labor commissioner and treasurer, as well as attorney general. So they're, they're making kind of a good go on some of the statewide offices and picking up places where maybe the Democrats hadn't fielded a competitive candidate. All right, Paul. Well, thanks. The next couple months will be interesting. You can follow all of Paul Money's coverage of state agencies and state government at our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.